0: Support for Design Matters comes from Adobe Portfolio. With Portfolio, which comes free with any Adobe Creative Cloud plan, you can quickly and simply build a website to showcase your creative work so you can get back to doing what you do best. Start today at myportfolio.com slash designmatters. Proceeds from Adobe Portfolio support of this podcast will go into a student scholarship for the School of Visual Arts Master's in Branding program. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 11 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative types about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. This episode of Design Matters is part of a series featuring new voices in design, and Debbie Millman talks with Georgia Lupi about data visualization and the data of our personal lives.
1: The more that you collect data and the data is part of your life, the more you start seeing data everywhere. It really changes your perception.
0: Here's Debbie Millman.
2: The world is awash in data. Every time we use our phones or make a purchase, we add our trickle to the flood. For companies and for media, for all of us, it's a vexing problem. How can we even see the flood when we're drowning in it? Georgia Lupi is an information designer who has a lot to say about how to make sense and tell stories out of data. She is co founder and design director at Accurat, a data driven firm based in Milan and New York. She is also the co author with Stephanie Posavec of Dear Data, an emphatically analog book about our digital lives. Georgia Lupi, welcome to Design Matters.
1: Oh, thank you, Debbie. I'm very flattered and excited to be here.
2: Georgia, I understand that when you were little, you loved to collect and organize all kinds of things into folders that you would then label with maniacal care. You organized paper, stones, swatches of textiles from your grandmother's tailor shop, buttons, receipts, in unabashed pleasure— What made you decide to do
1: this? (laughs) Well, I grew up in a very small town in the middle of Italy. I was an only child and I was also an only grandchild. So my parents were both only children. And so I um, used to come up with ways to entertain myself. And I spent a lot of time with my grandmother at her tailor shop. And I remember that she had all of these cotton threads and buttons and little pieces of textiles that she wouldn't use. And she was, very organized. So she had all of her tools cataloged in a way that made it easy for her to, you know, find that. But I was so fascinated by all of these colors, the sizes and dimensions that I asked her if I could find my way to organize them. For example, buttons with two holes together, buttons with four <laughs> holes together, and then it will label it for her. And It was really the first time that I realized that you can group things by colors, by sizes, by their visual features. And it was really the first time that I began to collect data.
2: You wrote about how you still remember the pleasures of categorizing your treasures and drawing tiny labels to specify how to read them. Do you still get that kind of pleasure Organizing and labeling things outside of the digital context.
1: Absolutely, I am a very—I would like to say organized person, but probably is more accurate to say that I'm an obsessed person for organization.
2: <laughs> Ooh, Every, I am too. I love where this conversation <laughs> could go. <yeah. laughs>
1: I mean, everything that I own is very organized and like folded according to my rules, and I really take pleasure in having. Order outside of me, I think, as weird as it sounds, it makes me more free to then live my life in a more, you know, creative and full way. If I know that my belongings and my stuff are really organized and I really take pleasure in categorizing and organizing them is really soothing for me.
2: Have you read Marie Kondo's uh, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up? I believe that's what it's called. Yeah. Yeah. After I read that, I, I ended up throwing away, I think, three large hefty bags just of paper that I didn't need anymore. So I understand you're quite a good piano player. Did you want to be a musician when you were little?
1: I've been playing the piano for a long time. I started when I was, I'd say, six years old, and uh, I took piano lessons until I was 20. I don't think that I've ever wanted to become a piano player. I knew that that was a passion of mine, but I knew that I wasn't a musician, musician. So I also used to play in a band. Um, <laughs> oh, tell us more. Were oh, you the lead singer as well? No, I was just playing the keyboard in a heavy metal band, actually. <gasps> no, what was the name? Oh, Black Fabula like fabula as fairy tale in Leighton. And as much as I really loved, like, performing and going on stage and rehearsing, I mean, I think that I felt that it wasn't for me to be the main thing.
2: You originally went to university to study architecture and even have a master's degree in architecture from the, and I'm going to try to do this (laughs) justice, Università degli Studi di Ferrara. Yes, you're very good. Oh, good. But I understand you've never built or designed any houses.
1: Why? When you are 18 years old, you don't really know what you want to do. And for me, architecture was a way to merge my need for rules and organization and something that is really scientific. But also with my need to express myself in a visual and creative way, because I've always, always been a visual person I've always been drawing in my whole life. So I guess that that was the right choice for me back then. But uh, during the whole five years of my study in architecture, I think I was very interested in the process of designing a building um, more than the architecture itself. And, well, yeah, also now that I know what information design is, also my master thesis was definitely an information mapping project. And that was an urban mapping project. It was an urban mapping project. We surveyed and mapped underused and unused places like buildings uh, in the specific region in the northern of Italy, and what we did, we we really analyzed the existing structures that could potentially host temporary art-related events, and we actually gathered I would say the made data about their present situation, so if they needed to be hooked up with electricity or just like needed to be added with facilities. And I remember that my book, like my thesis book, was really built on a template where every page was presenting the categories of the present conditions and the opportunities. So it was pretty natural to me then to get into data visualization.
2: 2011 was a big year for you. You started a PhD in Design Milan Politecnico at the Density Design Lab and also co-founded Accurate, your information design agency. What made you decide to do both of these things at the same time?
1: <laughs> I think that the very honest answer is that I wasn't sure of either of them. I mean, I wasn't sure that I had the quality and the talent to be an entrepreneur. But at the same time, I was so compelled to start these adventures with my, at the time, two partners, because I think that um, I really wanted to do something of my own after working for other firms and companies for a while. At the same time, I believe that in that moment of my life, I wasn't ready enough to close doors ahead of me. And I needed to, even though I've been working 24-7 and it was very stressful, I needed to be able to know that I had both paths ahead, if it makes sense.
2: Now, tell me if this is correct. The title of your Ph.D. thesis is Visualizing user generated cities, exploring the potentiality of emergent geosocial media applications as a novel source of urban knowledge.
1: How boring. Yeah. What it does is. that mean, Georgia? Tell me what that means. <laughs> I found my amazing PhD supervisor, Paolo Cucarelli, and he was already working with data. And since I um, had a background in architecture, what we ended up doing is shaping a research proposals that had something to do with the city and with city mapping, but also at the same time that could rely on data. So what we have been doing together and what I've been doing is gathering data, geolocalized data, by different kind of social medias. And so the Twitter feeds, Instagram... Foursquare. At the time, Foursquare in Italy was pretty big. And we found different ways. I found different ways to find out movement of people in the city or specific patterns, for example, in ethnicity of the people that were tweeting from a specific area. And so really listening to the city through this other kind of like layer and landscape. So you started Accurate with several partners.
2: Tell me um, about their backgrounds and, and what they do.
1: Before starting Accurate, I was already working with Simone, one of my partners, at um, who is a sociologist at this firm in Italy called Interaction Design Lab. And we're already managing our own division of the company. So it felt pretty natural to just like try to do our own thing. Um, and at the same time, my at the time boyfriend, now husband, trained as a designer he wanted to have a change in his career because he has been working with this motion graphic company that he co-founded five years before. And then the three of us, we got together and we started the data visualization company. Like, is in a joke. A sociologist, an architect, and a designer. And now our fourth partner is an economist, but he came in only later. So originally it was the three of us.
2: We've been hearing quite a lot about Big data, and it's a term that's being used now more and more, when you're working to visualize data, is there a difference between big data and little data?
1: If you think about it, even when we work with big data, the whole point is making it more meaningful, more contextual. And it's all about making it smaller so that we can understand (laughs) it, right? So definitely there are differences in terms of tool that you use depending on the quantity of data that you have. But I think that the purpose and the goal should never change and should always be to reconnect what these numbers um, stand for and what they do represent ultimately, which are our stories, our behaviors, our lives.
2: Now, I understand that you approach data in a very handcrafted way, which really surprised me. I read that in all of your work with data, you always start with sketching. Why? Why?
1: I think that sketching with data, so in a way, removing the technology from the equation before bringing it back, can introduce novel's way of thinking and leads to designs that are really customized and tailored to the very data that you're working with. And the fact that when you sketch with data, you don't have numbers in the paper, I think it helps you focusing on what is really that the data represent. It helps you focusing on the macro categories in the stories that you want to tell. I really like every time to start by thinking about what it's more meaningful to represent. And to me, this is definitely um, easier to do if I have a blank paper in front of me and my pens.
2: You've stated that everyone secretly stores data, even if they don't admit to it. So you've used the examples, the number of countries that they've traveled to, all of our followers on social media, or the biscuits you ate today that you feel guilty about.
1: That is actually a spread from Stephanie, but we can talk about that as well. Well, let's. Let's talk yeah. about your book. In 2014,
2: yeah. you started a year-long analog project called Dear Data, which turned out to be a life-changing collaboration with the London-based data illustrator Stephanie Posavec. Can you describe the project for our listeners?
1: Just to start a little bit from the beginning to maybe also understand why we embark in this project. So Stephanie and I, met only twice in our life and we found out that we had so many professional and personal similarities also you are the same age same age expats because I'm an Italian living in New York and she's an American and she lives in London and um yeah we're both only children um and so well over drinks at a conference where we were both speaking about this manual approach to data we decided that we needed to collaborate and so we started what we called dear data which was an year long correspondence of our weekly personal data uh, drawn on a poster sized sheet of paper and mailed across the Atlantic. So every week and for a year, we would collect data around a shared topic, something very mundane, to the interaction with our phones, to the time that we complain, we say thank you, the sounds of our surroundings. And then at the end of the week, we would take the time to analyze the data and to draw, like hand-draw our data on the front of a postcard. And on the back of the postcard, there will be the address of the other person, of course, and the legend, so how to read our data.
2: Well, in addition to this glorious journey through shared data visualizations, your book is very much the story of how you and Stephanie became friends through revealing to each other the details of your daily lives, which included when you might have been feeling envious or issues that you were having with complaining or issues you were having with your significant others. What made you decide to make this so personal?
1: I think that it would have been way less interesting to just map our activities. So in the beginning, I think that we thought that mapping our activities would give the other person an idea of our days and our lives. And that was really enough. But the more we entered into the project, the more we were willing to explore personal topics, both for getting to know ourselves better and to see if we could use the material or the tool of data to get deeper into some sort of issues that you might have or things that you might be interested in knowing. But also then it became more and more clear for us that sharing even your flaws, your geeky habits with the other person was something that could only bring us closer. And you know what? Sharing even, you know, your habits, your obsessions in form of data, it helps you not being afraid of them anymore because it's data somehow. You didn't try to draw everything that was
2: happening to you every day. You selected a weekly theme every Monday. How did you come up with those themes? Was it a shared process? Did you alternate themes?
1: (laughs) Yeah, so we started in the very beginning with a shared spreadsheet of possible topics that we wanted to address. But then we decided that we could be definitely more flexible. And so what we would do every Sunday evening or Sunday afternoon We would text each other and decide together what could be a nice topic to track for example, some of our weeks would really just be tracking our activities. And for example, the number of time that you check the clock or the number of time that you check the phone. Some other weeks was definitely more personal. So mapping our negative thoughts or the times that you say thank you. Another thing that we found interesting over the 52 weeks is trying to use data to become better human beings, at least for a week. And so we would <laughs> also have this, this that we call performative weeks. When we would do things intentionally with the purpose of reporting them. So, for example, smiling to strangers is something that you wouldn't do if you didn't have the tasks to do right. So it was kind of like a data competition to see who performed better at the end of the week.
2: After you and Stephanie came up with a theme, how do you then first track all of the information that you're going to use for a visualization? And then how do you decide what type of visualization to create?
1: First of all, given that we only shared a topic, the most important thing is setting up your primary question. So, for example, if the week is tracking your thank yous, what is that you're interested in knowing? And so, for example, I set up the question of how many thank you I say to people and how many thank yous I receive from people. And also then I set up secondary questions. So who these people are? Is it a stranger? Is my boyfriend? Is a friend? And also how much this thank you was meant on level of one, two, three, for example. Is it just courtesy or is it really something that is meant? And then you need to start remembering that every time that you say or hear a thank you. It's your time to log in. And you can do it in very different ways. And so, for example, there is an app that is called Reporter from Nicholas Felton, who is one of the first, of course, great designers who work with personal data that helps you really step-by-step answering to your questions. But what I also did is just logging down my data on a notepad, whether it's like a piece of paper on then Evernote, any kind of digital app that was handy on my phone or on my... Ever ever
2: write on your hand? (laughs)
1: um, Sometimes I think so. Just to remember that then I needed to log. So definitely you need to be creative in ways to do that. And, um, And so what happens then is at the end of the week, you have this whole amount of like qualitative data that you analyze. And what we ended up doing, it was spending time with our data, finding out what was the most interesting story of the week. Was it the chronological development of the story? So something where you could see pattern, for example, in, I don't know, mornings or afternoons or differences between weekdays and weekends? Or was it like grouped per categories? And so, for example, with the thank you, I realized that I am a compulsive thanker to waiters and waitresses. And so that I really say a lot of thank you. Thank you so much. Did you correlate any comparison between how
2: many times you said thank you or grazie and I'm sorry, which was another one of the exercises?
1: Yeah. Apparently, I say many more thank you than sorry. Good. (laughs) Uh, I don't know if it's good. Yeah, yeah. I think so. I think it's good.
2: (laughs) Absolutely. You start the book by stating that everything can be mapped, counted, and measured. Do you still feel that way? Did you find anything that couldn't be
1: measured? Hmm. I feel that in some way everything can be measured. It's only a matter of finding the way to count and categorize what we have. And the more that you collect data and the data is part of your life, the more you start seeing data everywhere. It really changes your perception. So I think that everything can be measured and counted and mapped.
2: Time factors regularly in dear Data. You mentioned the clocks. Week one was your week of clocks, wherein you document every single time you check the time in a week. Any idea how many times you checked it?
1: Oh, why? I mean, it's just insane. <laughs> also because I think it was, I don't know, something like... 30 something a day. Mm, day one was over 100. Oh, my God. Are you are you sure? You <laughs> I count gave up counting down. after okay, that. I was wow. like,
2: forget it. It's 100 times in this day. I'm not even going to go there.
1: But you know what's interesting is even at week one, we chose a pretty impersonal and cold topic, like how many times do I check the time? But what we did here and what is very different from the quantified self project, is that we didn't only quantify these numbers, so how many times did we check the time, but every time we would add anecdotal details to give the other person the idea of what was going on. For example, why I was checking the time. Was I bored? Was I hungry? Was I late? Or did I check it on purpose or just casually glanced at the clock? And that is really what dear data was, the pretext of the data collection, to give the other person an idea of ourselves and our days. You spent one week together. Stephanie came to visit. Did this change the dynamic
2: of your getting to know each other, the engagement here? You were now spending a week together, whereas you'd only previously spent two meetings together.
1: I think it felt nice because it was the first time that we could tell things about the other person because we read that in the postcards. And so it was the first time of discovering that actually, yes, you can get to know a person through her data. We are so close. I feel closer to her than to most of my friends. So it is possible to get to know a person through her data.
2: One of the final weeks is a week of privacy. Why did you choose that?
1: At week 51, I think we decided to chose to share our private moment because we felt that we've been sharing practically everything about ourselves, but there's something about the things that you don't want to share that is telling. And so we decided to be incredibly honest and map every time that we felt or did something that we would have won the other person or the world To know. We both sometimes are shameful, or I mean, we want to keep private something about our personal selves. And also, I decided to include it. Why? So, why uh, would I want to keep it private? Because I would feel a terrible person, because somebody would get hurt, or because I just don't want the world to know. So, yeah, it was a nice way to end this project that was really guided by a true spirit of sharing. One of the things
2: that I really enjoyed at the end of the book was the primer of sorts on how to visualize data, how people can learn and create their own data visualizations. For anybody that hasn't ever created one before, this is a marvelous way to learn. You state that data can make us more human and help us connect with ourselves and others at a deeper level. And I'm wondering if you can share how this experience taught you that.
1: We realized that really having to address even your obsession, your negative thoughts, your envies and the most private feelings in form of data, in a way, it really helps you not being so afraid to do that because ultimately they become numbers. But at the same time, I also think that collecting data on your daily life, all of the moments and things that happen to you help you being in the present much more. And so it's another form of connecting with yourself because you need to make the time in that moment to recognize and acknowledge that something is happening to log it. And I believe that acceptance comes from acknowledgement. So if you can force acknowledgement, you can get closer to acceptance if it makes any sense.
2: You and Stephanie have created a really wonderful way not only to help anyone understand data, but also understand and appreciate human behavior. Dear Data has been recently nominated for the Design Museum Beasley Designs of the Year 2016 and is among the finalists for the Innovation by Design Awards 2016. Congratulations.
1: Thank you. We're really happy about that all. Georgia, thank you so much for coming on Design Matters today. Thank you. It was a great pleasure, Debbie.
2: You can learn more about Georgia Loopy at georgialoopy.com and at Behance at georgialoopy. This is the 11th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we could make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Melman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon.
0: Support for Design Matters comes from Adobe Portfolio. With Portfolio, which comes free with any Adobe Creative Cloud plan, you can quickly and simply build a website to showcase your creative work so you can get back to doing what you do best. Start today at myportfolio.com slash matters. Proceeds from Adobe Portfolio support of this podcast will go into a student scholarship for the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance from Mark Dudlick. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this podcast in the iTunes store.